friends, let us now listen to Brother Mel Caparos, pastor of Living Word Christian Churches of Cebu International. So we're now ready to go to God's Word. May I request everybody to please rise from their seats, please. And let's read James chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, at the count of three. One, two, read. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring, and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a man or a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing fine clothes, and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You once again for this wonderful morning. Thank You for the opportunity again to be able to worship and glorify Your holy name. The words and songs and lyrics and melodies are not enough, Lord, to be able to honor You as we should because You are so far greater than our worship and so far greater than the honor that we can give to You. And yet we rejoice that we could somehow join together with all the rest, add our voices to be able to proclaim and declare Your glory in song. And we thank You for all that You have done for us, O God. Indeed, we are a blessed people. You've opened our eyes. You've opened our ears. You've opened our hearts and our minds. And here we are in the best place in the world. We are in You. We are in Christ. And Father, our prayer is that as we study Your Word this morning, we might become more like You, that we might have Your same heartbeat, that we might have the same eyes that You have as You look towards the world, May we have the same compassion, the same kindness, the same mercy and love that you shower upon mankind. Lord, change all of us. And Lord, whatever is going to be achieved through the power of your Holy Spirit, we will give you back the glory, the praises, and the thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's be seated in the presence of the Lord. I've entitled this morning's sermon, The Sin of Favoritism. And one of the things that is catching, one of the events that is catching the headlines right now is the violence that took place quite recently in Charlottesville in the United States. And somehow, that violence that was sparked by some people tells us that there is still a divide 
among some people. There is still some sort of favoritism and discrimination. And while it is true that many of us would be perhaps wagging our heads in disagreement, sometimes we may not be aware of this, that favoritism and discrimination can actually exist in church. At times, however, this is not noticeable because, of course, we are people who would like to think of ourselves as devout, people who are God-fearing. And yet, in the church, in the churches that James addressed, this was actually a problem. There was a problem with the sin of favoritism. And interestingly, if you go both to the Old Testament and the New Testament, discrimination and favoritism is something that God vigorously opposed. In fact, if we take a look at the Scriptures, we find that God is considered the champion of the widows. He is considered the champion of the orphans. He is considered the champion of those who are oppressed those who are marginalized in society. And here in the book of James, we find him tackling this issue quite vigorously. And so allow me to just give you a sermon flow this morning. There are three points that I would like to discuss with you this morning. And the first point is the principle and practice in Christianity. And what is that? It is the equality of all men and the equality of treatment, all right? That is found in verse 1. Now, we go to the second principle, which is, or rather the second point, which is the inequality of treatment. And we find this in verses 2 and 3. And in verse 2, we find two kinds of men. And then in verse 3, we find two kinds of treatment. Finally, our third major point would be the malpractice that is found in church. We find guilt on two accounts. And first of all, we find discrimination and judgment. And secondly, we find evil motivation. So let's go first of all to the first point right now, which is the principle and practice in Christianity. In James chapter 2, verse 1, it says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Now, what James is doing here is he is laying out for us what is supposed to be the principle and practice in Christianity. And if I could summarize it, I would summarize it in this way. The Bible is talking about the equality of all men, and that being the case, there should be equality of treatment. You know, one of the things that I truly love about Christianity, about our faith, is that it is in our faith wherein all should be treated equally because all of us are considered equal in Jesus Christ. We find a particular passage in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, which spells this out for us. And verse 28 reads, There is neither Jew nor Greek, 
There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So here we find being laid out by Paul in Galatians 3.28, the equality of all men. And that is why I like the Christian faith. I believe if there is a faith that treats all men equally, it is the Christian faith. In fact, if you go back in history, the reason why there was an abolition of the slave trade was because of a man by the name of William Wilberforce who convinced his fellow leaders in the British Empire that slavery was evil and that it needed to be abolished. And so thankfully, because he vigorously debated amongst his fellow men, he was able to succeed with all the wisdom and eloquence that he had. More importantly, it actually reflected his heart. And that heart was born out of a love for all men because he was a Christian. He was one of the members of John Newton, a pastor whom we know very well because he wrote that, uh, that, that hymn, which is up to now, we would say is a classic, the hymn Amazing Grace. And so it was William Wilberforce who was responsible for the eradication, the abolition of slavery. That came as a result of Christianity. I recall also one time, and by the way, this is something that I would like our church to somehow imbibe. I do not want anyone in our church to feel that they are being discriminated upon. I do not want anyone in this church to feel that we are preferring others above them. I would like all of us, if possible, to believe that we are all welcome in this place, regardless of our own status, regardless of whether we are rich or poor, whether we are famous or not so famous, whether we are popular or not popular, I'd like all of us to feel welcome. That's the reason, by the way, we came out with the Welcome Dinner Fellowship. Because we do not want to create an impersonal atmosphere in our church. Because we have been growing at a phenomenal rate in fact, I believe this year and the other year, we probably grew by maybe 300 to 400 people. And it's possible in such a large Christian community like this to be lost. You can just be a face in the crowd. You may not feel welcome at all. And therefore, we do not want to neglect those who have come to us because I know that people who come here are not only searching for the truth. They're not just here because they're hearing good music. People come here because they're asking the question, can I have meaningful relationships in this church? 
And I would like to be able to say that, yes, you can have meaningful relationships in this church if you will allow us, if you will permit us to welcome you and accept you and allow you to be connected to the body of Christ. And that is why our first Welcome Dinner Fellowship to me was a stunning success because people felt welcome. They felt the friendship. And some people were saying that they felt they were really part of this big family. And that's how we want it to be. Because after all, the Bible calls the church God's household. We are a family. We are all sons and daughters of God. And therefore, each and everyone must be treated on an equal basis. Now think about this. Sister Mattel was sharing about the mystery that has been revealed to us to the church. That is the coming of the Gentiles to saving faith. And the result of that, if you take a look at the book of Revelation, is that there will be redemption for every type, every tribe, every tongue, and every race. What does that tell you? God does not discriminate. To God, all people are equal. And therefore, favoritism in the church of Jesus Christ is out of place. And not only is it out of place, it is sinful. I'd like to give a working definition of favoritism. Favoritism is the practice of giving unfair preferential treatment to one person or group at the expense of another. Let me repeat that once again. It is the practice of giving unfair preferential treatment to one person or group at the expense of another. And that is why, as we go to the second major point, what we find here is the inequality of treatment, which was totally wrong, which we find in verses 2 and 3. Let's begin with verse 2. It says, For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, let's stop there for a while, this tells us that there are two kinds of men. Now, obviously, James was using hyperbole. He was exaggerating a bit. And the reason why he was doing that was he wanted to present a theoretical situation and was trying to find out how do you treat two kinds of people who might come into your church assembly. And obviously, here he was testing their hearts. He was testing their Christianity. And so, what do we find here? The two kinds of men are as follows. First of all, we find the rich man. And he is characterized by two things. First of all, the phrase gold ring. And the second phrase would be fine clothes. Now, the word or the phrase gold ring here is quite interesting because it is actually a compound adjective in the Greek. And it is not found anywhere else in the New Testament. You will only find it here in the book of James. And literally, what it means is gold-fingered. Gold-fingered. 
Now, what James was talking about is not a person who has one ring or one gold ring. He's talking about a person who has multiple, multiple or several rings either in one finger or perhaps in each and every finger that he has. So we're really talking here about a filthy rich person, all right, who has gold rings in his fingers. And that is what uh, James was referring to. Is there anyone here who is gold-fingered? <laughs> well, again, this is hyperbole. He was trying to exaggerate. And then he speaks about people who had fine clothes pertaining to be brilliant. I mean, the Greek word here means pertaining to be brilliant or splendid, though with the possible implication of being ostentatious or superficial, splendid or glamorous. You and I know that right now, uh, there are bags, for example, that are so expensive, they can cost you hundreds of thousands. And there can be some people who might be coming to church carrying those uh, very expensive bags or wearing those signature clothes. The question is, how do we treat them? Now, obviously, the Bible says that we are to treat each and every one with love. In fact, in the book of Romans, it says that we need to welcome everybody. So these people are welcome in church. But then, to prefer them over others would be wrong. And that is why James brings in another picture of another kind of person, another kind of man. And this time, he brings the poor man. And the characteristic of the poor man here is, it says here, and there also comes in a poor man in what? In dirty clothes. Now, this is quite interesting because if you take a look at the Greek word here, the Greek word, by the way, is ruparos, pertaining to being dirty or filthy. The emphasis of this Greek word is not upon clothes being ragged, as one might expect in the case of a poor man, but upon the clothes being filthy, and thus the basis for greater offense and avoidance. So the situation here is not of somebody coming in with torn and tattered clothes or old, worn-out clothes. No, we're talking about the person here who is wearing dirty clothes, the kind of clothes that homeless people wear because they cannot take a bath. They don't have homes wherein they can take a warm bath or a shower. And so they, they smell, they stink, and their clothes are dirty because they lie in the streets. They find probably a box or a carton where they can lie down. And James was asking this question, what if somebody like that comes to church? How do you treat such a person? Now, normally, some people, of course, would treat people wearing fine clothes in in a well-mannered way. But the question is, 
How then do we treat somebody who comes in with dirty clothes? I'm reminded of a church in London, which happens to be our partner church, Agape Christian Fellowship. And I can only heap admiration towards this church because this is a church that loves not only the rich, but loves the poor, and they love the poor dearly. You see, what happened before in UK, in Britain, was uh, if you lived in the European continent, there was no need for you to get a visa. You could go freely around all these European countries without a visa for as long as you are part of the European economic community. And so there were some Slavs, some people from Eastern Europe who wanted to make a fortune for themselves by going to UK. And why not? Because they might find a job there as a waiter or maybe as a janitor or a driver. And they could earn a lot of pounds. So they were thinking of their future. However, many of these Eastern Europeans do not really know English quite well. And so when they apply for a job, it is really very difficult on their part to get employment because they can hardly speak English. And Pastor Ding and Agape Christian Fellowship saw this as an opportunity to be able to minister to them because they were starting to live in streets. They were homeless people. Nobody would feed them. And so what they did was they started an afternoon service exclusively for homeless people. And what they would do during lunchtime is they would prepare a feast, a banquet for them. So that right after the service, they would have dinner. They would have something to eat. They would have warm soup and some meals. And it's really quite interesting how they minister to these people because these people could be quite rude. Sometimes while the pastor is preaching, they could be shouting and talking to each other and not listening at all. Some of them would even shout and say, cut the sermon short because they wanted to have their meals. They were so rude. I recall being in one of those services, actually two or three of those services, and I recall a lady, a Filipina lady who would cook food for them. And so she left her bag in one of the chairs, not mindful that somebody might, might steal her bag. And to her horror, one of those homeless people whom they had been feeding faithfully Sunday after Sunday after Sunday stole her bag containing cash which she really needed. And obviously, she was downcast as a result of that. But that did not stop her from, from continuing to cook for these homeless people. There are some of these homeless people who have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, my dear brothers and sisters, that is what true Christianity is all about. 
True Christianity is about loving all men. For the simple reason that that is a reflection of who our Savior is. It is a reflection of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus Christ died on the cross and paid for the sins of mankind, He did not die and pay for the sins only of the rich, only of those who were popular, only of those who were famous and influential. No, Jesus Christ died for all men. His blood covers the sins of all men who will come to Him. It does not matter what status, what influence, what power, what popularity you have. Christ has died for all men. And that is why our Savior does not discriminate. That's the reason why in the book of Revelation we find People who are redeemed from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Because that's what Christ did. He died for all men. The Bible says that when one sinner repents, the whole of heaven rejoices. Now, the Bible does not say that when one rich sinner repents, the whole of heaven rejoices. It doesn't really matter to God. In truth, all of us are paupers. We are all beggars in the sight of God. We really do not own anything at all. Everything that we have is really from the hands of God. So if you really think about it, all of us are poor in the sight of God. Yet here's the love of God. Here's the wisdom of God. He has died for all men. And if that is who our Christ is, if that is what our Christianity is all about, how dare we discriminate on people. You know, I would hear of churches that would say our ministry is a ministry to the rich and influential. I think those statements are bothersome. Because, obviously, you're not looking into the book of James, chapter 2. Because if you would look at James, chapter 2, you would be embarrassed in making such a statement. Christianity never says the highlight or the focus of our ministry is only to those who are rich. No, friends, Christianity is for all men. See, the question we need to be asking is, if a poor person comes to church, would he feel welcome in this place? That's the big question. And I'm thankful to God somehow that in this church, I would like to believe that all people are welcome. I recall Brother Homer sharing a story to me one time. Uh, Brother Homer is one of our church musicians. He plays the keyboard. He's a musical arranger as well. And he was walking down Juana Osmeña Extension Road. And as he was walking, somebody called him a lady street vendor. 
somebody who sells her goods in the streets. So she called out to him and said, Brother Homer! And Brother Homer was surprised that this street vendor knew him. And he was probably wondering, uh, maybe I'm famous already. <laughs> and so he, he was looking and he was quite, you know, he, he had this quizzical look on this woman wondering, where did I meet this woman? And so the woman knew that that was the thing that was running through his mind. So because she guessed his mind, she said, I'm from Living Word. I'm from Living Word. And Brother Homer said, that's what I like with our church, he was telling me. Because in our church, all people are welcome. Amen? Everybody is welcome in this church. Doesn't matter if you're a street vendor. Doesn't matter if you're a poor person. We welcome you. And by the way, that's the reason why I told the ushers, I mean, a few years back when we were organizing our ushering committee, I gave them a lengthy exhortation. And I told them, you need to understand, I told the ushers that you are the face of this church. When people come into the doors of this sanctuary, you are the very first person they meet. You are the face of Living Word Church. And therefore, I was telling them that you need to be able to represent not only our own church, but to represent the Lord. And that's why I told them that when people come in, when you shake their hands, give them a firm handshake. Let your smile be warm and genuine. Let them feel that they are welcome in this church. And I would like to think, brothers and sisters, that they have done a tremendous job because we have grown, amen, in numbers. So give the ushers a big hand, please. They're the very first ones who come here to church. They're the last ones to get out of the church. And I'm really thankful to God for what they have been able to do because that, once again, is very important. You know, one of the reasons why Mahatma Gandhi did not come to Christ, Mahatma Gandhi, by the way, stayed with a pastor for about a year. No, I'm sorry, about a month. And he read the Bible, and when he read the Gospels, he began to love Jesus Christ. He was attracted to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was like nobody that he had ever met or read before. And so he was attracted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so he was already taking a look at the merits of Christianity. However, when he decided to go to a church, in a church gathering like this, he was met by a very cold handshake from one of the ushers, a very cold handshake. I do not know exactly what happened. Maybe there was no smile. Maybe the handshake was not firm. 
maybe the usher was not even looking at him. I don't know what happened exactly. But you know what happened? Mahatma Gandhi turned his back never ever to go back to any church facility. And this is what he said. I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Let me say it again. He said, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. I hope that is not true in our case. I hope that everybody feels that they are welcome in this church. Let me give you a theoretical example. Jesus Christ was a very ordinary man, a carpenter, in fact. He would be classified as probably poor according to our own standards. And we are told in the book of Isaiah that he had no appearance that we should be attracted to him. So we would say that the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ was very ordinary, very humble. And the question I would like to ask you is this, what if Jesus Christ came to our church? What if he entered the doors of our sanctuary? My question is, would Jesus feel welcome in our midst? Would he feel welcome? Because that's a question that we need to be able to answer. And that is why I'd like to address this time, not the ushers, but those of us who are here. Obviously, you and I who have been here for a long time, we do notice some newcomers coming in. And, and we would know that they are new in church. Why? Because they're not familiar. Probably they don't know where the restroom is or where the hall of Sarah is or where the hall of Abraham is or where the elevator is. They might not even know there's an elevator. And so you know that they have come for the first time, that they are new in church. What do you do? Do, re do you reach out to them and give them a handshake? Do you, do you say hi to them and ask their name? Do you ask them, is this the first time that you've come to church? I think it would be good practice and a culture that we need to develop in church to welcome first-timers, to welcome newcomers. I recall one person who is now worshiping in our church at IT Park. And he's a foreigner. I think he comes from Australia or the United States. I'm not sure anymore. But anyway, he said, I, came to, I went to two churches. I was hopping from church to church because I was looking for a church where my family could worship because they were coming in from another country. One church they went to, he said, well, we did not feel welcome. Nobody shook our hands. Nobody said hi. So we went to another church. And the same thing. We were not welcomed. Nobody approached us. Nobody said hi. We felt unwelcome. They went to our church here. 
And they said, well, this was the first time, that was the first time that they felt welcome in church. The only problem, however, was they're living in Mandawe. So they were saying, we need to look for a church that is quite near our area. And so they knew that our church at IT Park was part of the Living Word family. So they joined that church. And they were just starting what they call as the Newcomers Welcome Fellowship. And, and so what they did was to go around and, and search for the newcomers, and they started to welcome everybody. That was the timing wherein this family went into that church, and they felt warmly received. And they made the decision, this is going to be our church family. They've been worshiping there for several months already, almost a year. But that's exactly what people are looking for. I mean, you can have the best preacher in the house. You could have the best music in the house. But at the end of the day, people are still going to ask this question. Can I have meaningful relationships in this church? And that is why that makes us all responsible. Because obviously, I cannot shake the hands of all 1,000 or all 1,200 people in one church service. I can't do that. But you can do that. Maybe you're seated beside some people whom you have noticed are new. Welcome them. Say hi to them. Smile at them. Give them a firm handshake. That will go a long, long way, brothers and sisters. And who knows? These people who are coming here, they may not know Christ. But because of your warm welcome, they might begin to listen to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And who knows? They might come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that is why as we go to the two kinds of treatment, we are to see here a negative example of how not to treat certain people. Look at uh, the, the second sub-point here, the two kinds of treatment in verse 3. Verse 3 reads, and it says here, you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and you say, you sit here in a good place and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. The rich man here is treated well. They, he was given a VIP seat. He was given the best seat in the house. Come, sit here. This is the best seat in the house. That was how this rich man was treated. By the way, this preferential treatment is not only given perhaps to the rich, but maybe those who are famous, those who are celebrities. The moment they come into the sanctuary, we recognize them as somebody we have seen on TV or maybe in theaters. And immediately we pay special attention to those people. Now, I'm not against that. But what the Bible, and I believe James was not also against that, but what he was against was the comparative way by which he treated this poor person. Because it says here 
in so far as the poor person is concerned. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. This poor man is discriminated upon and made either to stand up, not because probably there was no seat in the house, but because he had dirty clothes and he might soil the fine chairs. So they say to him, well, just stand up. Stand in the corner. Stay there. And the other alternative is sit at the footstool. Now, we don't have that right now. Obviously, in our church, we don't have a footstool. But in those times, they had a footstool. It was a piece of furniture on which one may rest one's feet. And if you think about it, what's the dirtiest part of our body? Most especially when we go out. It's our feet, right? And during that time, they did not have shoes. They had sandals. And so obviously, all the dirt and all the mud was gathering under their foot. And they would place their foot on the footstool. So what they were saying to the poor man is, since you are wearing dirty clothes, this is the place you should be. This is dirty. That's where you should be staying. Wasn't that insulting? If a poor man with dirty clothes is treated that way, do you think he would be converted to Christ? I think he would react and respond in the same way that Mahatma Gandhi responded to that very cold handshake. He would never, ever return to church. And in places, by the way, where there are no footstools, guess what they are saying really here? They're saying you sit on the floor. That's where you sit. Don't sit on those fine chairs. Just, just sit on the floor. It is really tragic that this thing was happening during the time of James. A lot of us, when we think about the early church, the early church was the perfect model. No, actually, the early churches had, had big problems as well. The Corinthian church, for example, was a carnal church, close quotations. It was a carnal church. They were a gifted church, but they were into immorality. They were into discrimination. It was really a church that was very, very fleshly according to Paul's terms. You had the church of Ephesus, which was a very orthodox church, and yet, it was a church that had lost its first love. You have the Colossian church, which was a church that was now beginning to embrace incipient Gnosticism. They were beginning to put value on rituals and ceremonies and on the Sabbath. They had it wrong. You have the church of Galatia that was now beginning to follow the ways of the Judaizers. And then you have this church in the book of Revelation, the church of Laodicea. Interestingly, in the church of Laodicea, Jesus was knocking at the door. Let me ask you this question. Do you knock at the door when you're inside the house? Do you ever do that? You're inside the house, 
and you're knocking. How do you call a person who knocks inside? How do you call that? Crazy, right? You don't knock when you're already inside. You knock on the door when you are where? When you're outside. Guess what? In the church of Laodicea, where was Jesus Christ? He was outside the church. He was not welcome in the church. He was knocking at the door of the church of Laodicea. Of course, this was figuratively speaking. But what that tells us was that Jesus was not even being allowed to come into the life of the church. He was outside the life of the church. That is why he was knocking because he wanted to come in, but they had shut the door. They had shut the door of the church to their Lord and Savior. And sometimes that's how it is. This is exactly what was happening in this church or in the churches that James was addressing. They were doing exactly the opposite of what Jesus wanted to happen. Jesus wanted to welcome everybody. Jesus wanted the church to be welcoming, embracing, loving, caring, compassionate, kind, and merciful. Why? Because that's attractive. Mercy is attractive. Love is attractive. Forgiveness is attractive. A welcoming church is an attractive church. An embracing church is an attractive church. And that represents who our Jesus is. And that's why, again, here in this particular case, we find something quite tragic. There is this human tendency in most of us to honor and respect more those who are distinguished in appearance. And those who are not so distinguished are not given due courtesy. This is something that happens in the world, but it should not happen in church. Amen? A church should be a refuge. A safe refuge. A place where people feel safe. A place where people feel that they're going to be cared for, that they're going to be counseled, they're going to be mentored. They want to be able, we want to be able to think that the church is a place wherein there are many shoulders that you can cry on. Many people who would pray for you. That's what we want to happen in church. There's this legend. By the way, this is just a legend, not really a true story. But it pictures to us something very important. Legend tells of a simple laborer who was wonderfully saved and decided to join a local church. The first one he visited was an impressive-looking structure. The minister was a splendid orator. The choir was famous for its musical ability. The poor man did not realize that most of the congregation were people of high social rank. At the close of the service, no one stopped to shake his hand because they saw his threadbare, low-class low standing. Week after week, he was politely ignored. Although he frequently expressed a desire to become a member, the preacher never called on him. 
One night after praying about the matter, he fell asleep and dreamt that he met the Savior and he confided to Jesus his problem. And he said, Lord, they did not welcome me in that church. Nobody reached out to me, Lord. To which the Lord replied, my child, don't let that trouble you. I myself have been trying to get into that church for years without success. It's a legend. But it's really a picture of the church of Laodicea. Jesus outside knocking at the door of the church. Let me add that sometimes this favoritism is made manifest in the fact that we get excited with the conversion of a wealthy person or a celebrity. So when, when somebody who's famous, somebody who's rich becomes a Christian, we're excited. But do you get excited when a street beggar comes to Christ? Do you get excited with that? Again, let me go back to what I mentioned with one sinner that repents, the whole of heaven rejoices. It doesn't matter what color, what status, what influence. The important thing, a soul is saved. A consequent problem with preferential treatment is that a person will begin to think that he is more special than all the rest. Isn't that what happens? When, when a wealthy person comes or when a celebrity comes and you give that person special treatment, guess what this person thinks? I'm being treated in a special way. I'm really a special person. Let me ask you this question. Will that help him? Will that contribute to the humility of this person? Because in the world, this person is already treated very well. And then when he comes to church, he is treated extra special. Now, no problem with special treatment, but extra special might be too much. And the problem sometimes even is, even when the church is not even sure about the conversion of this person, this person is immediately asked to testify. I recall a pastor who was talking to me one time, and he was, he was just uh, sharing to me one of the problems that he had because he had a celebrity member in his church. He said, my problem with this celebrity member of my church is when he comes to a particular church gathering, he is always asked to speak. He never sits down and listens to the pastors. He's always the one speaking out and sharing about his testimony. The question is, if he keeps on doing that from church to church to church to church to church, how will he learn? How will he be discipled? How will he be mentored? Amen? Obviously, his growth will be stunted. He will not grow and mature in his Christian faith. And it might all go into his head. And so instead of cultivating humility, what is the result? 
pride and arrogance. And the results could be even more disastrous. And it brings me to our third and final point. Verse 4 reads, Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? So we find malpractice, guilt on two counts here in verse 4. First of all, discrimination and judgment. The phrase, made distinctions among yourselves, means that they were saying that there are two kinds of people in church. One special, the other one ordinary. You know what you've done? You've made shopow out of people. Special and regular. That's what you've done. Of course, you know what shopow is. It's a Chinese bun where you have the special ones and the regular ones. That's what we do when we discriminate. We say there are special people and not so special. We have created a divide which should not even be there. You know what Christ did when He died on the cross? He destroyed all the barriers. He destroyed all the walls. He destroyed all those divides which create people apart, which cause people to grow apart. Christ destroyed all those divisions. So such thinking, when we make distinctions among ourselves, is totally unchristian and unbiblical. The phrase become judges basically means that we make the judgment that one group is better than the other. Isn't that what we're saying? One group is better than the other. And what does the Bible say? Do not judge before the time. But sadly, that's what happens when we discriminate. And the second indictment here is in terms of motivation. This discrimination and judgment may be an indication of evil motives. That's what this verse says. It says you have become judges with what? Evil motives. Some of us may want to make uh, some of these wealthy people as milking cows, financiers in church. By the way, that's the reason why in the church we don't ask you if you're tithing. We assume that you understand it's your responsibility and duty before God, first of all. We don't collect from you personally, directly. That's why you have tithes and offering boxes. That's why you just have envelopes. It is between you and the Lord. We do not want you thinking that we are after your pockets. We're not after your pockets. We're after your souls. Nevertheless, it is still your responsibility to become partners in the work of God. That is why you have the duty and responsibility to give a portion of your resources for the work of the Lord. Amen? And that is why, again, it is possible that some churches do that. Sometimes people come to church to do business. I'm here to find connections. There are many people here who are owners of businesses or they are managers. I'd like to find connections. Don't do that. 
There's a place to do that. That's outside the church, not in church. Do it outside, not here. Sometimes we, we may just want to say that we have rubbed elbows with the elite. Or sometimes we may just want to be noticed by those whom we revere. Whatever the case might be, that's all wrong. Those are evil motives. And all over the world, there is racism and discrimination. It's really sad what is happening to the world that is taking place. In, in the previous sermon, we were talking about religious wars. We were talking about massacres and, and suicide bombings. Now we're talking about violence as a result of the racial divides. This is the world that we're living in. But this is not what Christianity is all about. That is why when people come, let them know that in this place there are no distinctions because our Savior does not make any distinctions. He treats all men equally and grants salvation with no thought of riches or poverty. Jesus never says, I'm going to save that person because he has several bank accounts. The Lord doesn't do that. Here's what Jesus said, and I end with this. John 7, 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty. Anyone, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're famous or not famous, whether you're influential or not influential, whether you're powerful or powerless, whatever your station in life, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Amen. That is who our Savior is. Hallelujah. And praise God for that Savior. Praise God that we belong to His family. Amen. Let's give the Lord a big hand, please. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and bless you for this time that you've allowed us to just meditate on your word. And we thank you, O oh God, for what you've accomplished. We trust, Lord, that the word has penetrated the hearts of each and every person in this hall and that you are now working out your grace, your salvation, your redemption in each and every one of us. Lord, we pray your blessing to be upon each and every one of us. Let grace overflow. And we thank you also for the opportunity to give our tithes, our grace gifts, and our offerings, Lord. Use them for the glory of your holy name. And once again, we pray, bless and prosper us not for our own sake, but for the sake of your name and the sake of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.